Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. Today's discussion is on using antiviral medications with Omicron and writing a blockbuster first novel. Our first speaker today is Dr. Ari Cement, who is a pulmonologist at Mount Sinai Hospital in Miami Beach. Ari has treated thousands of COVID patients since the March 2020 outbreak. Ari spoke on my last two programs, and he is now officially a regular on the show. Omicron cases continue to explode exponentially around the world. We're going to talk about the new Merck and Pfizer antiviral drugs that are just coming to market and who should take them to reduce the likelihood of hospitalization after infection with COVID. I want to know what Ari is seeing in the hospital's COVID ward right now, what Omicron symptoms look like for a typical victim, as well as for patients who are hospitalized. Ari will explain how the vaccine and boosters will reduce the risk of hospitalization and Omicron symptoms. This COVID variant is unbelievably contagious. Masks are the best we can do, but anecdotal evidence is that masks are not working particularly well with this variant. Herd immunity, here we come. Our second speaker is my good friend, Jay Newman, who is a longstanding member of my book club. Jay retired from the Elliott Hedge Fund after working there for many years. Jay is well known in the industry for his litigation victory against Argentina, where he successfully defended bondholders after Argentina defaulted on their debt. Jay has written his first novel about a crooked hedge fund manager. The chatter from the publishing industry is that it will be a blockbuster. I want to learn from Jay how he pulled that off. I also want to understand his creative process that led to his novel entitled Under Money. Every month since the start of COVID, I've discussed the monthly employment data released by the Bureau of Labor Statistics because it is the leading indicator for global growth. This month proved to be another surprise. The establishment and the household surveys this month had very different results. The establishment uses employment data from our largest firms. It showed a gain of 199,000 jobs, while the household survey showed a much larger increase of 650,000. There's another private sector employment survey that's conducted by ADP, which is the nation's largest payroll service. Since ADP had access to so many firms' latest employment data, they have a good handle on the situation, and their, and their survey results showed an even larger increase of employment in the month of December of 807,000. So what's the truth? Is employment surging or stagnating? Nobody knows. What I learned in my economics training is that when you don't have a firm grasp of supply and demand, the best indicator is price. And here we can look at the change in the average hourly earnings, which increased by 4.7% year over year and accelerated to a 7.3% wage increase when you analyze the December monthly result. With wages increasing so quickly, it is likely that employment demand is outstripping labor supply. And I would guess that the surveys with the larger employment growth are probably right. The wage inflation is disconcerting because it can't be blamed on supply chain constraints. Companies will need to increase the price of goods to make up for the cost of labor. Inflation is probably here to stay for the foreseeable future as the economy is on fire. All right, let's get started with our first speaker, Dr. Ari Cement. Welcome back. It's been a week. What's new in the hospital? Do you have a bunch of new Omicron patients? And if so, what do they look like? A bunch of new Omicron patients. Omicron is sort of fleshing out their underlying comorbidities, and it's becoming more on the forefront. Let's imagine you have a bad case of heart disease, you catch COVID, it aggravates the heart disease, and it sends them to the hospital? That's what it looks like. 
So you're more likely to have an MI if you have some coronary disease, just like you pointed out. If you have diabetes, you're more likely to get diabetic ketoacidosis. If we compare this with the flu, what we notice in a generic flu is there's significant loss of life for children under the age of one and for the elderly. I think that the reason why the flu kills the elderly is it causes some form of pneumonia and they end up dying of the pneumonia, but they really died of old age and comorbidities associated with it. How do you compare Omicron with a standard bad flu? I think that's a perfect analogy. I think in 1919, when they had the flu epidemic, the majority of people probably, I, I don't know, you could verify this, but they probably didn't die of the flu itself. They died from bacterial superinfection, as opposed to the COVID Delta surge, where we were seeing a lot of COVID pneumonia, ARDS, people dying really of the ARDS from COVID pneumonia. Here, it seems like the people are getting sick because of their Omicron disease, but it's not directly the Omicron. It's not the flu-like illness itself. It's what it's bringing out. And just to contrast it with Delta. So when we had Delta, there was a, a lot of virus in the body. Your body went into a little bit of shock in the sense that it started producing a lot of fluid. That fluid would end up in the lungs. It would interfere with your normal breathing apparatus. And then lo and behold, we are in the hospital with a bacterial infection in the lungs. I'm hearing that Omicron does not cause that sort of body response. Instead, it's staying in the upper nose respiratory area and away from the lungs. Right. There are at least seven studies that are, that are published now showing that the phenotype of this Omicron is different than the Delta. It does not attack the lungs. However, I am not sure if in reality the unvaccinated patient is going to have that same phenotype. In other words, I've seen already a few of the unvaccinated Omicron that it does seem to act a little bit like the old Delta. I see. So if you compare and contrast a vaccinated patient with an unvaccinated patient, I guess what's happening with the vaccinated patient is because the antibodies and the T cells are all reacting to take down the Omicron virus as it enters the body. It doesn't engage the full body apparatus that would cause the pneumonia. And I think what you're saying is that for an unvaccinated patient, he or she would get a greater response that could result in pneumonia. Correct. But even in that unvaccinated patient, the pneumonia looks different. So when, they, when they've done these hamster models and the mouse models, those are the in vitro studies showing decreased lung cell infectivity. Those are unvaccinated hamsters, right? And they're not showing lung infectivity. So there is a difference in the phenotype of this disease, but those unvaccinated are going to have more of a response, whether it be upper respiratory, but it's going to lead to the pneumonia. So we're seeing patients all across the world that are unvaccinated are much worse off if they get even the lighter, quote unquote, Omicron. One of the concerns for vaccine hesitancy was that the vaccine was worse than the disease. The disease varied by age, by comorbidity, but you've been in the hospital for the last year and a half visiting these patients. How bad is the disease for the unvaccinated? There are people that will get by, just like in the Delta phase before. But the vast majority of people that things go wrong for are the unvaccinated. It's clearer than ever, actually. If you've been double vaccinated, even though your hospitalization rate, your vaccine effectiveness, it's 50%, even if double vaccinated, that's not such a great number. If you're triple vaccinated, it's 88%. 
reduced risk of being hospitalized. So it's much better if you're triple boosted. But even if you're hospitalized, being double vaccinated, chances are you're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of viewers probably who have had two vaccinations, have not gotten boosted. Based on that 50 versus 88, would you highly encourage people to get their booster right now? I would. You know, you are going to hear cases, oh, I just got my booster and then I got Omicron, but, you know, because it takes some time for the booster to kick in. But the numbers are already published out there that you are significantly less likely to be hospitalized if you have Omicron, if you have a triple boosted versus just two vaccines. I have some listeners who have vaccine hesitancy who have not been vaccinated. One reason I've I've heard for hesitancy is, look, if I've been working in a retail store for eight, 18 months and I haven't got it, I must have some natural immunity. Do you think that applies to Omicron as well? Do you believe the natural immunity story or that they may have gotten it and have been asymptomatic? I think that there is definitely validity to those who have vaccine hesitancy if they already had COVID before. So I do feel like the natural immunity, if you've had previous infection, is understandable. I mean, studies have shown that if you've had COVID, it's like you've had two vaccines. So in other words, you've had it. You haven't had your booster. You're better off having actually three vaccines than having just one prior COVID infection. But if you had one prior COVID infection, it is like two vaccines. You have T-cell immunity as well. However, in the vast majority of people that say that they felt like they had COVID, they probably didn't have it. And those patients should be vaccinated. If you've had COVID, it's like having two shots, which you call like a 50% reduction hospitalization. If you've had COVID and now you get this one shot, it's something you probably get to the 88% number of not being hospitalized. That's a material difference. When I was hospitalized at Mount Sinai, I had a chance to speak to a substantial number of the nurses, and a lot of them expressed hesitancy of getting the vaccine. They mentioned a couple of things. One, they were worried about getting pregnant. Sometimes they said they wanted to wait a year and see how the vaccine uh, worked out in the general population. What would you tell your nursing staff at this point about whether or not to get the vaccine if they were thinking about having a baby or wanted to see more data before making a decision? Every hospital, there is hesitancy in the, in the age group of peri-pregnancy. The issue is that if somebody is pregnant and then they get COVID, there is clear data that there's more of a risk to not only the baby, but the mother as well, once they have COVID. So you want to get the vaccine, even if you're pregnant. And that's something that you have to talk about with your ob but we would recommend a vaccine to prevent you from getting COVID, which is much more deleterious to the fetus and the mother than the vaccine. Just think of it logically. You're giving multiple antigens when you get COVID versus one antigen, spike protein, whichever vaccine you've gotten. It stands to reason you should take the vaccine more than you should get COVID. This Omicron is incredibly contagious. I've heard numbers five, seven, 10 times more contagious than Delta. One of the concerns the vaccinated had with the unvaccinated population was that the unvaccinated would be spreaders and they only wanted to stay with their vaccinated friends. But I'm hearing that the vaccinated are also contagious. How do you distinguish the probability of being a super spreader to the extent that you're vaccinated versus not? If you're double vaccinated, I agree with Dr. Eric Topol, who's voiced his opinion on this matter. Being fully vaccinated now shouldn't be two vaccines. It should be three vaccines. Okay. If you've had two vaccines and you're around somebody, 
that had COVID, you could potentially spread it. Now, the caveat to that is that it's not as deadly or it's not as dangerous, it's just like having a cold for most people. So you don't have to live a life of seclusion now. It's not like the first wave. So you have to balance those two. Earlier this week, the Chicago Public Schools teachers went on strike. They closed the Chicago Public Schools because teachers said they didn't feel safe with Omicron on the rise. Is that a rational decision for schools to close indefinitely because of Omicron? I understand this is a very touchy subject, but I think it is not a rational decision. Personally, I think it's more important to keep kids in school and to educate them. And there are risks, but we can't over-dramatize the risks of this variant compared to the prior variants. It seems that for kids that are between the age of zero and 20, Delta was not that dangerous, nor was the original virus. Is Omicron proving to be even less problematic for that age group than, than others? As you have so many more Omicron-infected people, you're going to see numbers in the hospital, children's hospital, and numbers in the children's ICU go up. I am not a pediatric doctor, but I could imagine that those numbers are going to go up, but it's not because the variant is more deadly, just because the numbers are really skyrocketing. That's what we see in the adults too. So I imagine that flows over to the pediatric population. If you had a teenage child who already had two shots, would you recommend they have a booster? The CDC just advised that it's approved above 12 years old, and I would take the vaccine. Again, right now, the reason for the vaccine is a little bit more to prevent them from losing time five days out, as opposed to the risk of infection. It's tricky. I'm not pushing for it. I'm not rushing to the, to the pharmacy right now to get the vaccine. So the answer is I'm not scared of it, but I'm not rushing to get it. For the 80-year-old grandma, you would say, do whatever you need to do. Go get that booster. For the 60-year-old businessman, you'd say, you know what? I think it makes good sense to get a booster. 40-year-old, much less. 20-year-old, you know what? Not that big a deal. Is that, is that where you are? Yes, that's, that's where I am. I remember when the H1N1 swine flu was around, they were wondering why specific populations were protected. And one of the reasons was because they had it when they were children. So they had natural immunity. Mm-hmm because this swine flu was around as a young person. So in a way, I was sort of hoping that my children would get it. One of them had, one out of three already had it. And I was hoping the other two sort of had it already. So we have that natural immunity also down. I don't know how well the the spike protein is going to favor, is going to fare many years from now when the antigenic drift is going to occur, which makes another Omicron. But I have a feeling that the natural immunity is going to play a, a stronger role years down. So you're saying that 25 years from now, the fact that I had alpha will be a positive for me. Or you didn't get it, but you got those three vaccines. It's probably not as good as the real deal. Correct. Until they make up universal COVID vaccine, which will solve the problem. All right, let's move on to the new antiviral drugs, which will be hitting the market the next few days. This is the Merck and the Pfizer drug. I'm going to skip the scientific name because, you know, no one can pronounce it anyway. They're not real words. All right, tell us a little bit about the Pfizer drug first. The Pfizer drug is the more studied drug in terms of the randomized controlled trial, and it showed more efficacy. So, for instance, just to throw out a number, 
you were 0.8% likely to be hospitalized if you got the Pfizer drug versus 6.3% if you got the placebo drug. So that's a very good number of hospitalization. So it's efficacious. The downside to using the Pfizer drug is it's actually two drugs in one. And one of them is a well-known HIV drug called ritonavir, which actually is what keeps the other active drug higher up in the, higher up in your bloodstream, which makes it work. But that causes some drug interactions. So the issue is going to be some drugs that you're on, such as statins or if you're on amiodarone, there's going to be medicines you're going to either have to stop or be cognizant that you're taking. Let's say that you're on some high blood pressure medicine and a statin and you're 80 and you get Omicron. Would you recommend discontinuing for a week your high blood pressure medicine and your statin, taking down the Pfizer drug because it's more efficacious than the Merck drug, maybe coterminously trying to get a monoclonal antibody on the side? For the 80-year-old, for the higher risk person, I'd want my numbers to be better. So the, the Pfizer drug is better than the Merck drug, but like I mentioned, there are more drug interactions and probably more side effects. So I would definitely stop those drugs that I know, like statins and amiodarone. There's a special enzyme that it inhibits, that the drug, Pfizer. So it's very easy to look up those drugs. Tell us a little bit about the Merck drug and who would be a good candidate for that antiviral. The Merck drug, Molnupravir, is, again, the numbers for that are less impressive. So it was 6.8% versus, let's say, 9.7%. So it definitely is significant in the big scheme of things, but it's not earth-shattering. So I wouldn't use it for my highest-risk patient that I'm really worried about. I would give it to somebody in their 30s to 60s, wants the symptoms to go away faster, and you know wants to take something, is not happy with just letting the natural course. I think what's a better question, Larry, is whether or not you should take anything at all. Yeah, should you take anything, Ari? I would say for a high-risk patient who can't get monoclonal antibody, I would take something for sure. For the lower-risk patient, you could really just wait it out, supportive care. So we'll just go through it. My teenage kid gets it, forget about it. Drink some Gatorade, do your homework. For sure. The 40-year-old, no pre-existing conditions. There's always a 40-year-old that knows another 40-year-old who ended up on a ventilator and they're going to be worried. So that's the patient I'd give molnupravir. That's the Merck drug or maybe the Pfizer drug. Got it. But you wouldn't be trying to jump the line for the monoclonal. It sounds to me like for the 80-year-old, you'd say get the monoclonal antibodies. And if you can, take the Pfizer. But if you've got something, take the Merck. Is that right? The only difference between the last time we talked, which was like a week ago versus today, is that a week ago, I think the Delta numbers were probably higher yeah, percentage-wise. And now I think they're lower. So there's more and more Omicron. So the Regeneron and the, or the Eli Lilly drug is really focused against the, the Delta. So I think you're going to see less effect on the, on the 80 plus year old. Can you explain why Omicron is pushing out Delta so much? So the Omicron is affecting those people that the Delta would have hit, but Delta didn't have a chance to hit him yet. So he's actually protected from Delta because he got Omicron. It's not like you get Delta and the Omicron. However, it's interesting that you are seeing Omicron with other viruses. I know they talked about influenza and Omicron. They're calling it Flurona, which is the flu and Corona at the same time. 
I looked at the testing centers. There's lines around the block. It's not that bad. You don't feel that sick. We're hearing that it's just the entire population is getting this Omicron. How is this going to play itself out on a, on a local and national level? What percentage of our population do you think has been exposed to Omicron already? And when are we going to start seeing herd immunity from it? I think the numbers of our vaccination in the world, the USA, is something like 66 in the world, which is pretty sad. So I think that we're going to be hit harder than those 65 other countries. So we're going to see hospitalizations skyrocket. And then like in South Africa, they're going to plummet. There's also talk about the masks are not as effective. So it, it's just continuing to spread. Everybody here knows another person who got infected. It's going to peak and come down. I don't think there's much we could do at this point other than get your booster shot. Do you think your first vaccine would be helpful if, you, if you've been on the sidelines till now? I think if you take your first vaccine and then you walk around with a N95 mask or you stay really in hibernation, then you have a good chance. But if you're out and about like you were before, then chances are you're going to get this thing. And will the vaccine prevent you from getting to the hospital, even one? One vaccine is unlikely, but it's better than zero. And when you compare and contrast, let's say you're unvaccinated and you run and grab the monoclonal antibodies, for example, which is a more risky proposition health-wise, the monoclonal antibodies or the vaccine? You just brought up a great point. I don't know if you meant to do it. There is actually an alternative for somebody who has not been vaccinated. Let's say there's a reason. Let's say there's a patient who was anaphylactic to vaccines. So they didn't take vaccines and now they're very worried. There is a monoclonal antibody that's specifically made for pre-exposure prophylaxis. It's called E-V-U-S-H-I-E-L-D, Evushield. And that is something they can look into. It's called Evushield. And that's actually interesting for the person who, let's say, really wants to get the vaccine, is really worried and hasn't been vaccinated, to investigate about that option. Another example is I've heard there are people who have certain autoimmune disease who have not vaccinated for fear of some sort of complicity associated with that comorbidity. What are your thoughts on that at this point? It's definitely a reasonable avenue to speak with your rheumatologist or oncologist to say, hey, look, I, I didn't have the vaccine. Can I even get this monoclonal antibody to protect me at least for the next 30 days, however long it lasts in your bloodstream? I end each session already on a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about? I'm not seeing the same ARDS that we saw on the whole with the other variants. I'm optimistic that this will turn out to be a bad cold for most people. And I'm optimistic that this will actually give us all the herd immunity that we've been looking for. Mm -hmm. so that we could move on from this and be normal in three to four months. Perfect. Thank you, Ari. Thank you very much. Let's move on to our second speaker today, who is Jay Newman. Jay is a very good friend of mine and a former hedge fund manager that focused on emerging markets. Jay is well known in the business for his successful litigation against Argentina after the country refused to pay back its debts. Today, Jay is going to discuss his new work of fiction entitled Under Money, which the literati are calling a likely blockbuster. Jay, please begin your six-minute presentation. Larry, thanks for having me. I spent over 20 years in the hedge fund world, essentially chasing deadbeat countries that didn't want to pay what they owed. Occasionally, I wrote op-eds describing 
what it took to chase down a country like Argentina or the Congo or Peru to get them to pay back what they owed. And when I retired, I thought it'd be fun to write a book, a nonfiction book about my experience. But as I thought about it, I realized that I could accomplish a lot more if I fictionalized it. My idea for a novel centered around a military guy that I knew from my days at Morgan Stanley. He was special ops, an intelligence guy, a true American patriot. His name was Don, like the hero of my new novel, Under Money. Don described to me the interplay between finance, military tactics, and foreign policy. I started the novel with my protagonist, Don Carter, a guy who wanted to change the world. He doesn't like how the military is run, how politics are practiced, and he hates the corruption that's inherent in the interplay of money, politics, and policy. I started thinking about the ways that the Don character might change things. And his challenge was that he needed money to support a political candidate. He puts together a team of his former military colleagues to help him, an active service general, an aspiring politician, and a young woman who is the other hero in the book, an undercover agent. Their big idea is to take over the world's largest hedge fund to fund their guy's election campaign. And what they discover is that the targeted hedge fund is corrupt and engages in all sorts of nefarious activities. And that is the underlying premise of the book. Jay, thank you. You know, I've known you more than 10 years, and you are a longstanding member of my in-person book club. And you're the first book club member who has retired to write a novel. So what happens next? How did you get this published? How were you successful in persuading influence makers to try to make this a blockbuster? It was a lot of luck. I had some early readers who were really helpful, mostly friends and family. And the first test was, was I able to write something in a compelling way? Was the story interesting? Then by chance, I got introduced to Sloan Harris, who's the head of literary at ICM. I sent Sloan a pathetic first draft, and I've since rewritten the book four times. But Sloan must have seen something in it because he took me on as a client and nursed me through the first two revisions. After that, he encouraged me to work with the editor-in-chief at Scribner's, Colin Harrison. Amazingly, I got the dream team, a top agent in the business and a brilliant editor to support me. Your novel reminded me of the works of Tom Wolfe and Tom Clancy, and you use incredibly detailed descriptions like Tom Wolfe used in Bonfire of the Vanities. Your book also had a military aspect that reminded me of Tom Clancy's classics. Now, I'm a hedge fund guy. I'm interested in politics. I've met politicians and all the key decision makers. And I'm aware of how these people dress, how they think, how they behave. And you really deep dive into the minutiae. I didn't even know you were that observant, to be honest with you. (laughs) It's fantastic. One of the benefits of working in the hedge fund industry is that you meet a lot of interesting people, people from all over the world. And if you're paying attention, you can quickly appreciate who they are and how they operate. Tom Wolfe was a huge influence for me, a brilliant writer, and he was at his best with social commentary. I hope I've managed to capture just some of that approach. I really wanted my characters to be classically Wolfian. The military and strategic elements were definitely influenced by Clancy, and the other guy I read throughout the writing was Norman Mailer, especially Harlot's Ghost which is his novel about the Cuban Missile Crisis. I really commend it to anyone interested in geopolitics and policy. Your book reminded me of Robert Penn Warren's novel, All the King's Men. 
because all the major characters have done something in the past that they were embarrassed about and are desperate to keep private. How does this concept of secrecy influence you? Everybody has secrets, especially the characters in my book. They've all got foibles. You could say some are immoral. Maybe they're all immoral. But I think they're all heroic, each in his own way, even though they're dangerous, self-involved, and some would say um, more than a few are psychopaths. The point I'm trying to make, the red pill I'm hoping people will swallow when they read Under Money, is to think critically about everything they read in the press, about what's going on in the world, because people don't realize or think enough about the fact that money is beneath the surface of absolutely everything that happens. It doesn't matter if it's the public sector, the private sector, a charitable organization, an NGO, a company, it's always the money. Even when the purpose of an organization is high-minded and principled, it's still the money. And that's where the term under money comes in. When my son David was in Japan, he befriended a restaurateur, Sao Asano, who runs Robotaya in Rapangi. And when Asano visited New York, we took him out to a restaurant and asked him, I asked him, my translator, my son, said, is it any different opening a restaurant in New York versus a restaurant in Tokyo? And Asano said, it's the same, under money. And he rubbed his fingers together and he gestured under the table with his hand. That's where I first heard the term under money, which, by the way, Larry, I want to take credit for this. I think I will have introduced a new word, under money, into the English language, which refers to the rivers of money that influence and seeps through and controls everything, controlling events and people. I think it's hilarious that you're introducing a new word to the English language, and on the very first page of your book, you open with a dictionary definition of under money. It's not even a word yet, but there's the definition you want for the next edition of Webster's. For sure. How do I get that done? I think it's probably a money problem. <laughs> Got to find out who to give the money to. I want to give Colin Harrison, uh, my editor, credit for the idea of including an actual definition. He said, because it's a new word, you should really have a definition. So I'm just going to read it. It's not very long. Under money is money which is unknown publicly that controls individuals and events. The currency of corruption, bribery. See also blood money. And that's the essence of what this novel is about. Okay, let's talk about sex. We've never broached the topic of women, let alone sex, in our dozens of previous conversation. Yet your book has plenty of sex. How did that come to be? Was it the editor's idea? Who told you to put so much sex into this book? <laughs> Originally, it had no sex. It was totally cerebral. My characters were kind of cool and calculating, but not very sexy. And we could easily have discussed it all in one of our sexless lunch or dinner conversations. Even though maybe sex is like money, it's under the surface everywhere all the time. When I was working with my agent, with Sloan, he said, these are powerful people. They're having sex. You've got to put sex in the book. So I put in some sex, and then uh, the draft got to Colin Harrison, who's written half a dozen novels, and he told me to put in more sex. So I went home, I told my family, and one of my kids said, no, no, Dad, I can't have you writing about sex. That's just crazy. And I said, I've, it's what I've got to do. So I put in more sex. And then it got back to Colin's desk, and he said, there's too much sex. And I said, it's too late. It's already there. That's fantastic. The hedge fund industry plays a central role in the book, and hedge funds enter the public zeitgeist through the television program Billions. And in that TV show, we saw the inner workings of a hedge fund 
and the interactions between the various players. But in your book, we only get to observe one man in action. Why did you choose to limit it to just the most senior hedge fund manager and not his entire team? It was a matter of simplicity. It's in my experience, most hedge funds are completely honest. Um, they do things by the book. But we've read about is the bad guys, the single actors, and even though they have teams, guys like Bernie Madoff and Alan Sanford. Um, but what I because what I wanted to explore was the what if, the possibility that if your only business was trading on inside information and your only business was having absolute certainty as to future events, what would that look like? How much money could you make? How would you do it? And I thought it was just more straightforward to have one really ruthless, crazy trader rather than to have a whole cast of hedge fund characters. So this is a man who doesn't trade anything unless he knows the outcome at the start. He's the ultimate inside trader. Your concept of insider trading is different than mine. Instead of trading on non-public information, the character buys put options on a refining company and then he has others blow up the plant. I'm not sure that's insider trading. I think it's just criminal actions. Why do you call it insider trading? Larry, I think you're right. Maybe inside information is the wrong word, wrong term. In the book, I refer to something more broader. I call it making things happen. And maybe if someone took my character to court, they wouldn't be able to convict him. What I'm trying to explore is the toxic confluence of uh, a Russian military contractor, military types, this corrupt hedge fund trader, and what happens when they come together, creating events, whether it's blowing up a factory, a ship, a bridge, or a country, they're always looking for an edge. They're always looking to create a situation and then trade on it. I think this happens in real life. For example, periodically when the Russians and the Saudis get together and they decide they're going to produce more oil or less oil, to my way of thinking, there's no way, I would say no way, that the Saudis and Russians aren't trading on the information. They're trading it up down, sideways. That's what happens in Undermoney. The characters are looking for events that will have a big financial impact. And of course, there's the final event, I'm not going to spoil it, where one that has an enormous financial impact around the world. In the book, you reference the possibility of paying off the Mexican president to default on its government debt during a financial crisis. The trader could profit by shorting Mexican government bonds. I'm not sure that's a crime. I agree. I think Untoward things happen in third world countries in particular all the time. Things happen all the time because somebody's paid off. You can imagine a very simple example. Let's say a Mexican public official broods in a private meeting that they're going to have trouble making the next debt payment. Obviously, that would have a huge impact on the price of the debt and maybe on local equity markets as well. It does happen, I would say. Actually, that seems like standard operating procedure in my emerging markets prop department. Let's talk about the military next. I never knew you were a lover of military action, weapons, and strategy. You know, I always knew you were interested in foreign policy and the use of military force, but not the specific weapon. How did you happen to get interested in the detail of warfare? My characters like blowing stuff up, so I had to figure out how they did it. And most of what I, I wrote about, I learned by doing the research, frankly, using Google. Google is amazing. But there's a whole section in the book that deals with what's happening in Syria. And in researching it, I learned a lot about Russian, American, Syrian weapons, uh, their military strategies. But I also had the benefit of two ex-military guys who read drafts of my novel and, and guided me. So they made sure that I got things right. And so far, no one's complained. I was particularly interested in researching what a female agent 
might carry as weapons. Greta Webb, who's the other protagonist, is never without a knife or a gun. And for her, the question was always, what would look good under my skirt? An Armani skirt. Always. She's an Armani girl. <laughs> Love that. The military guys in this book are unhappy with how the military operates. They think NATO is bullshit. They think that most of the wars we fought since the Korean War have been pointless, ill-conceived, poorly managed, cost a lot of lives, cost a lot of money. And they're students of Eisenhower's military industrial complex, and they're disgusted by it. Samuel Huntington's book, The Soldier and the State, discusses the military deference to civilian control. And in your novel, there is a desire to follow the president and his cabinet in the decision-making process, as well as the role of Congress in overseeing it. Now, the good guys want to use their ill-gotten money to persuade the American people to elect a leader who shares their political philosophy. How do you think about the soldier in the state in the context of your novel? I think that soldiers have captured the state. Uh, the relationship between members of our military and Congress is, in particular, is uncomfortably close. The military has done a great job over a very long period of time of buying off congressmen and senators by locating bases and weapons manufacturing in many congressional districts. Very clever strategy, but it becomes an incestuous relationship with the military always wanting more toys and the political class always, always wanting more money spent in their neighborhoods. It's, it's classic under money. It's under money at work. And today I was reading about problems we have with $50 drones launched in swarms to bomb and destroy multi-million dollar ships, planes, trains. That's part of the problem that characters in Under Money want to solve. Money wasted on weapons and strategies that are outmoded but very expensive. I think if you were Russia today, you're in a better strategic position than the United States. They've got hackers. They can toy with our elections. They can toy with our companies. They can steal our data. And just take our Navy. If, if I were designing a Navy from scratch today, I wouldn't rely on aircraft carriers. Because there's, if there's a hot war with the Chinese or the Russians, aircraft carriers would be sitting ducks. They'd be sunk by hypersonic missiles in the first half hour. Russia plays a very important role in the book. To what extent does your real-life experiences explain your portrayal of Russian oligarchs? I've been to Russia maybe half a dozen times, and it's one of the scariest places I've ever traveled. Russia is controlled by crime families. The difference between Russia and let's say, a smaller crime family like the Cosa Nostra, uh, which controls Sicily. In Russia, they control a vast state with oil, gas, and a seat on the UN Security Council. Maybe the way to think about Russia is as a big hedge fund run by Vladimir Putin's lieutenants. Putin also controls the military. He's got private military companies that he can deploy to do his bidding in various theaters around the world. So whether it's the South China Sea, the Middle East, Latin America, Cuba... You've got a crime family with global reach. People talk about how much money Putin's made. He's rumored to be one of the richest men on the planet because he's tithing an entire nation. That's power. You know, the novel also explores cultural literacy and appreciation for art and paintings. Why did you decide to include that dimension? I love the contrast between brutality, cruelty, and ruthlessness on one hand and culture and refinement on the other. It was really great fun to relate and conflate the two. In, in one scene, these Russian elite oligarchs are sitting on a yacht in the Mediterranean. They're eating caviar and blinis. They're talking about a rare painting that's just been given as a hostess gift. The wealthy Russians are just like wealthy people everywhere. 
They pride themselves in erudition, in music, art, literature, philosophy. The characters in, in Undermoney are, are very similar. Uh, they style themselves as contemporary moral and political philosophers, but at the same time, they'll stop at nothing. And that brutality and cruelty underlies everything they do, particularly because they're always making things happen, causing destruction of property, loss of life, all to make money. In reading your novel, I was not familiar with the 19th century Russian painter Ilya Repin. How did you come to reference his art and make it core to your novel? After retiring from the hedge fund business, I decided that I wanted to learn how to draw in a classical way. So I went to a school, Grand Central Atelier, which teaches classical art methods. And I took drawing classes. And I met a fabulous artist, Ted Minoff, who introduced me to, uh, to Repin and his work. And in fact, Ted has named one of his kids Repin. And that's where I got the idea. Repin is one of the foremost painters in the Russian pantheon. The fact that his work is so highly prized made it the perfect foil for these characters. I heard you signed up for a second book. How did you get a second book deal even before the release of your first one? My first book is called Under Money. The second is going to be called Uncertainty. And just to be grandiose and ambitious, I hope there'll be a third book, and that's going to be called Unthinkable. Uncertainty, the second volume, will explore how people can manipulate the world, markets, and prices just like in Under Money. But it'll also explore the question of what would happen if an American president had his own private army and had the ability to manipulate domestic politics very directly. And what would happen if that president was willing to take on the Chinese, really take on the Chinese? I want to turn next to the interrelationship between the wealthy and the media and how the wealthy can use the media to their ends. There's a character in Under Money who is paid off to spread misinformation. How do you think about the media's independence and its accuracy, and why did that become a focus in your book? I don't think the media is independent by any stretch. Uh, journalists want to sell books. They want to catch eyeballs. It's all about money, like every other business. Jeff Bezos, owning the Washington Post, of course people say it's hands-off. Is that really possible? The New York Times is controlled by the Sulzberger family, but their biggest shareholder is Carlos Slim, a Mexican billionaire. The media interacts on a daily basis with politicians. You've got this combination of wanting to earn money and influence people, have access, and all those goals are inextricably linked by money. You have a libertarian political philosophy. Why did you decide to embed your political beliefs in the character uh, Ben Corn, who's running for political office? Larry, you've, now you've let the cat out of the bag. I think Ben Corn is the candidate we've all been waiting for. Somebody who tells it as he sees it, says that both the left and the right are irresponsible. He's the guy that in another time, Donald Trump might have been. Somebody who was willing to use a bully pulpit with frank talk to get people to come together in the middle. Judge Richard Posner spoke to my book club years back about his book entitled Law and Literature. And in it, he said that literature allows us to create situations to evaluate legal principles that normal circumstances do not. And in your book, you gave a chance to think about Ben Corn, a rising politician who doesn't do the right things. This is probably why there should have been more sex in the book from the very beginning. I probably missed something in these characters. I hope it's there now. Ben, ben Corn, he's stripping a journalist. Um, and she's not just gorgeous. She's powerful in her own right. That's part of the attraction. He just can't help himself. And I think we're living in a world where people are driven by their sexual predilections and orientations. 
And those also drive everyday events. We can't ignore that. Why would someone who doesn't need to risk his political future risk his political future by, by engaging that way with journalists? Ego. Trump is a politician who doesn't seem to care much about his airing his dirty underwear. Why does he seem uniquely able to say, fine, it's true, let's move on, where others have not? I mean, Bill Clinton denies Monica Lewinsky, I think, to this very day. I wish I understood that better. Trump just didn't care. Maybe he didn't care enough. I think if Trump had cared a little bit more, he might be president today. Jay, I end each episode on a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic that if people understand the role that money plays in absolutely everything that goes on on the planet, they might become more critical thinkers and make better decisions when they're casting their votes for elected officials. I think that's a cause for optimism. Jay, thank you very much. Thanks to Jay and Ari for joining us today. That ends today's session. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes, or you wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify.